Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. I'm Tyler Orton. And I want to talk about one of the events we have coming up because BIV is once again seeking BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards. Nominations close July 30th. We're going to have big celebrations after we reveal the winners. Send in all the submissions for all the great people that you know. But talking about today's show, well, we have a lot of escalating tensions between Canada and the United States, and it's pushing a lot of consumers to jump on board the Buy Canadian bandwagon. So we're going to be speaking to RetailInsider.com editor-in-chief Craig Patterson about the practicality of all this. He's also going to share with us his insights on other big retail news, including major expansion plans for an Asian fast food chain, a new anchor tenant at Metropolis at Metrotown, as well as Vancouver's status as a hub for luxury stores. Speaking of luxury stores, costs of living in Vancouver has been on the rise, but for international companies looking to send employees abroad, Vancouver is actually a pretty attractive destination. We'll be speaking to Gord Frost later on. He's with Mercer Canada, and he'll be breaking down their latest cost of living report. But first, coming up, we're speaking with Craig Patterson from Retail Insider. Well, amid trade wars and escalating tariffs, many are vowing to buy Canadian. But how easy is it for consumers to do that? Really, we're going to take a look at this phenomenon and discuss other big news in retail with our next guest. It is Craig Patterson. He's the editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So buy Canadian. Um, I don't know if I wanted to just run into a store and pick out a lot of things that say (laughs) made in Canada, 100% Canadian I don't know. I'm thinking about the supply chains, how everything's integrated between us and the United States. How easy exactly is it for us to go and buy Canadian, Craig? Probably uh, more difficult than we think. Uh, you know, economies are intertwined uh, like never before, you know, certainly with free trade uh, and whatnot. You know, we're in a global economy. And right now what's happening is insane. We have, yes, you know, I, I agree. With an, all-out, an all-out trade war. It really doesn't make sense. I mean, in far, you know, to actually buy something, that's going to be challenging. I don't even know if you can do it with maple syrup. I mean, at this stage, there's all kinds of, you know, distribution, production, bottling, you know, advertising. It's, it's endless, really. Yeah. A lot of people obviously are unhappy with what's going on now politically, trade-wise. But is that enough to actually get people, if they can find the Canadian products, will they actually make a conscious choice to buy Canadian regardless of the cost? Um, I think up to a certain point, I think that everyone's price sensitive. And at some point, someone's going to say, what's the point of, uh, you know, having a much more expensive quality of life versus, uh, you know, an American president that someone might not be happy with over a trade war. I, I don't think it's going to go on for too long or hopefully, but I think at this stage with this presidency, you know, it's it's lunacy and uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but you know, ho- hopefully it'll be finished soon. I, I don't know. I-, I think that everyone has a breaking point and uh, probably these tariffs would, uh, would help with that. I was even thinking like, what if somebody just wanted to go buy a new car? I mean, I, you're not going to get a hundred percent Canadian made car. I mean, all of the parts that they're coming from all over the world. That's, it's just, it seems like an impossible task ahead. And I can understand the patriotism part of a lot of Canadian business, uh, a lot of Canadian people wanting to support Canadian businesses, but 
I just wonder if it's just too impractical. It probably is. I mean, we're so, you know, a lot of products in the United States, you know, have a Canadian component, you know, on the flip side. I think it's going to be a challenging time as far as a car that's going to add thousands and thousands of dollars to a purchase price. And uh, probably unless someone's a millionaire, you know, they're not going to be keen on paying that. And we'll probably find any way to get around it regardless of their uh, patriotism to buy Canada, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So we're speaking about, you know, made in Canadian products, but okay, well, why don't we throw an example out there? We actually have the Canadian mattress in a box brand, Endy. If you listen to a podcast that's made here in Canada, I, I hear them all the time now in all the advertisements. They're now opening a lower mainland distribution center. So what what's going on with this company? Is it a lot of growth ahead and, and behind them right now, Craig? There is. I think bed in a box is or mattress in a box, same thing, basically. Uh, it seems to be really a, uh, a phenomenon, not just for Endy, but for, you know, Casper, which is starting to open stores. They said they want to come into Vancouver. Uh, you know, Endy is the top selling mattress in a box brand in Canada right now. It's uh, supposedly also the highest uh, rated. This is what, you know, we're being told. And, uh, you know, it's it's a good quality product that's actually made in Canada at, uh, you know, I mean, the queen size bed I was looking at was $850. I believe that was the mattress price. Uh, it's quite phenomenal, though. I mean, they're saying that their business has exploded, uh, opening a distribution center on the West Coast. I think it's terrific. They're going to be serving Canadian customers faster with this distribution center. And it's, it's a trend. Almost everybody now is getting into the mattress in a box. Sleep Country Canada has two brands alone in their stores. Hmm. Yeah, to me, that that speaks to the fact that this was an industry or an area that needed to be disrupted. And when you think we've spoken to you so many times about Sears, which is maybe where a lot of people used to buy mattresses, even Hudson's Bay, but big storefronts like that sort of going by the wayside, Craig. It's interesting. Sleep Country Canada is uh, it's launched a mall expansion. So they're doing stores and shopping malls, which is not something they typically did. There's one at the CF Richmond Center as an example. I think it's open. If not, it will be. Uh, I haven't been there in a while, but uh, uh, what they said, they did an interview with us and said that one of the reasons they're going into malls is because Sears is gone, and that was their number one competitor. So, you know, that's, that was an interesting revelation because it hadn't really been discussed before, but Sears Canada was their number one competitor. That competitor is now gone in Sleep Country Canada. You know, it's it's uh, onward and upward, I guess you would say. <laughs> Anybody else feel weird when you know you have to walk into the mattress section either at a Sears or inside a Sleep Country, and then everybody kind of, well, first... You know, you sit on the mattress, and then you, you kind of slowly lay down, and, and you're wondering: Is people are people looking at me? How many other people have laid down on this mattress? It's, it's always like a weird sort of sensation <laughs> that I get. Awkward. I don't mind going online and just going click. I trust all these reviews. Maybe that's kind of the the idea behind a lot of the success here right now. A little bit, and I think also with the Casper stores, I think because they encourage trying it on, it's not going to be awkward. Um, those stores are really meant to be show centers where you learn about the product, try it out, and, you know, if you want to buy one on the spot or order or one, it's up to you. Yeah, you can you can order it. At, okay, I, I swear we, we don't have any sort of sponsorship deal with them, but you can <laughs> you can order it, and, and then you can actually have it for like 100 days. And so, I mean, it's like kind of convenient. To, How do you get it back in the box? I yeah, think that's, that's the actually the, the real challenge. Because it does sort of expand and fill up with air a little bit. Once you get it out. I'm not thinking that far ahead. Yeah. But, uh, and they, they, they donate them. They don't reuse the mattresses. I spoke to them about that. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, Andy, and it's not just Andy, it's all the companies. Uh, yeah. they're, they're donating these. I just, I know because I did an in-depth interview with Andy, but, uh, you know, not to even just to speak, you know, favorably of one company. There's all kinds of them out there. And, you know, again, there's Casper, there's Lisa, L-E-E-S-A, I think is how it's spelled. There's another one with two words that's got the word nature in it. I don't know. It's interesting. There's, uh, they're all coming out of the woodwork. I think there's over a hundred brands right now doing this. 
I, I think that makes sense, though. But and for anybody who likes to maybe eat in bed or snack in bed, we actually see a big expansion plans ahead for the Filipino fast food chain Jollibee. It's finally confirmed that it's coming to BC. We've seen locations pop up in Ontario, even Manitoba, but nothing in Vancouver. We've got just like this thriving Filipino population. So now it's going to expand to 100 locations in Canada over the next five years. Have we been waiting way too long for a Jollibee location here in Vancouver, Craig? Definitely. I think Vancouver waits too long for a lot of things. And, you know, it's not a fault of the city. It's that, you know, companies have their own expansion plans and they may not always go in the market that perhaps would be best for them. I think Uniqlo and Muji are examples. They started in Toronto and discovered their Vancouver sales were higher. Uh, I think that uh, (laughs) Jollibee is going to probably see their best business in Canada uh, on the West Coast. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that Toronto does have a strong Filipino population. And I guess those places are you know, doing gangbusters. But, um, you know, if I was running it, I probably would have started my uh, expansion in Vancouver. But, you know, Jollibee Canada, I believe, is headquartered in Winnipeg, which I think has the highest per capita population of uh, Filipinos in the country, which is interesting given that it's chilly and kind of in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Would a chain like Jollibee have to really focus its efforts on marketing outside of Canadian Filipino populations or just the fact that they're expanding in a big way? Is that going to be enough to drive interest, even if Canadians haven't ever heard of the chain? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think that, you know, chains like KFC and maybe Popeyes, I'm not even sure what markets Popeyes is in. I know they're in a few of them. Um, You know, they've got this brand awareness already. So I think Jollibee is going to come in and be a competitor. Uh, I definitely don't think they're going to rely only on Canada's Filipino population, which is quite large for this. So I think that it's going to be a double approach. I think they're going to be creating brand awareness where they can. They're going to definitely be targeting the Filipino population, but I think they're going to want to go after all Canadians, as they probably should, and say, you know, we have a great product, and I just haven't tried it. I'm really curious. <laughs> I'm well, really curious. But. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I can share, because, like, I used to live in the Philippines, and these Jollibee outlet, outlets are everywhere, just everywhere you go. And you go in there, you can get burgers, fries, just, like, you hot dogs. Uh, you'll get spaghetti with, like, sweet sauce and, and hot dogs chopped up and, and hmm. put in the spaghetti. You also have like traditional Filipino food like palabak, uh, halo halo. So I think it's actually going to appeal a lot to just people that have like very toned down Western tastes. You know, you can get your cheeseburger and fries and then you can also like try some things that will be a little bit uh, out there for some people. So also the the mascot's like this giant bumblebee that (laughs) is plastered throughout the entire store. Everyone's going to recognize the mascot more than anything else. So I think that'll draw a lot of people in. So um, now, now I'm hungry. I know. Sorry about that, Craig. (laughs) But uh, look, we're talking about expansion plans here. Let's talk a little bit about Holt Renfrew, which is spending $400 million across all of Canada to expand and renovate. And I I think we want to zero in on what's going on in Vancouver with Holt Renfrew's location here, Craig. How well is this performing as maybe a Holt Renfrew outlet or just like a luxury store in general? It's interesting. Um, the CEO of Holt Renfrew said in an interview to WWD, uh, we didn't get an interview, but they did, and um, he was saying that the Van- he said the Vancouver market is underestimated, firstly, and secondly, that the Holt Renfrew store at the CF Pacific Center is one of the top six to eight luxury stores of its kind in the world in terms of sales. Um, it's been estimated to be about $400 million a year, which uh, I don't know if there are any stores outside of New York City, large format luxury stores like that, that have that type of sales number. Apparently, maybe uh, Neiman Marcus and Beverly Hills might. I know that there was over 200 last time I checked, but, you know, it's 
currency conversion. And, you know, Beverly Hills, there's insane amounts of money there. And, you know, his personal stylist will be shopping, you know, and that Neiman Marcus. But the fact that Vancouver's whole rent through has, you know, about 40% of all of the sales of that entire chain is absolutely phenomenal. It speaks to the strength of the Vancouver market. Um, Holt Renfrew ended up using the Vancouver store as a bit of a uh, template for their other flagship renovations, which is interesting because Yorkdale and Toronto had originally been that template, but now with Vancouver, you know, it's uh, successful in every area from shoes to handbags to ready to wear for men and women, so maybe not men's handbags, but it's a very, very successful store. Mm -hmm. We have other luxury retailers in Vancouver, so what is Holt Renfrew doing to really stay ahead and ensure it? It keeps the customers that clearly are going to the store and buying quite a bit every year. Well, Renfrew was about clustering, and clustering is a tremendous strategy in the luxury sphere. Our luxury brands like to be together so that luxury buyers will be able to more conveniently get to them. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whole Renfrew's strategy is a bit of a mixture of being a department store and a shopping mall. So you've got some very, very high-end brands that have... Uh, fairly considerable amount of square footage like Chanel is over 5,000 square feet and that's an in-store you know shopping store uh it's a whole rent is really you know they've got sections that are leased to the world's greatest brands which is you know terrific I mean they have that awareness and no one other store in Canada has that not even Nordstrom it's got some but Holtz you know was just blowing everybody away I would say uh, and then on top of that you know they have their beauty hall and you know footwear and you know those departments that whole rent themselves run so Basically, in a nutshell, it speaks to the strength of um, clustering together in order to cater to the consumer. And in this case, it's competitors, you know, being in the same space and not, you know, saying, I don't want to be near my competitor. Well, if we're talking about Holt Renfrew, why don't we bring in the next most classy retailer that we have in, in all of Metro Vancouver? Because we're finding out that Walmart is actually going to be the new anchor tenant at Metro Town. It's taking over from Target. Um Craig, were, were some people maybe holding out hope that maybe something a little bit more higher end would be moving into that spot that Target vacated? Uh, it's interesting because it's got a large space and, you know, one of the most productive malls in Canada. It's also one of the busiest and one of the largest malls in Canada. I do the Retail Council Canada study, which should be coming out again this fall, um, where we rank shopping centers on different metrics. Metro Town's terrific. Uh, I do think that some people may have... Uh, Desire, you know, say a Simon store, you know, or a second location for Nordstrom in the Lower Mainland, or or Lord only knows what else, or even you know some sort of a entertainment complex. But regardless, you know, Walmart has stepped up and uh, you know signed a lease, and it'll be a Walmart store. It, it'll drive people into the mall. I think I know that Square One in Mississauga uh, has, uh, you know. You know, uh, Square One in Mississauga has, in uh, you know suburban Toronto has a Walmart store. It also has a whole Renfrew store in the same mall. I think that's kind of interesting. There's nothing else like that in North America in terms of malls having such a wide uh, uh, range of anchors from you know fairly low end to extremely high end. Uh, I don't know. I mean, some people may be a bit disappointed with the announcement. Um, others are going to be absolutely elated that uh, the Lower Mainland is getting another place, you know, that has affordable shopping, especially as we discussed Walt Renfrew, <laughs> where, you know, most of the products there are, uh, you know, their, their price point have gone up at home. So it's interesting. Hmm. If you walked into a Walmart 10, 15 years ago, maybe elicit sort of a different response in the Walmarts today. I'm curious, Craig, whether... You know, that what we think of when we think of Walmart has changed and maybe we've warmed to it. It's not by any means a classy retailer, but is the brand awareness and what we think of when we think of the brand, has it improved? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it, I guess it depends how you look at it. If people are looking for, you know, a reasonable selection of products that 
a good price, you know, I think that perception would be there. The brand awareness is unquestionably there. I mean, Walmart's in the news every day. But uh, whether or not its image is more positive, I think it really depends. And the reason I say that is, you know, I'm getting emails from some union groups that are slagging Walmart every day. It's an American, but still, you know, American slagging. And, you know, it's in a tough in a company like that, you know, they're known for, you know, being pulling the purse strings and, you know, their public perception is mixed, I would say. Um, you know, some Canadians may see Walmart as being an unethical retailer. You know, there was a kerfuffle around, you know, one of their former stores being used to uh, house, uh, you know, children that have been separated from their parents in the United States. I don't think Walmart in any way was responsible. But nevertheless, they were, you know, indirectly being implicated. So it's actually really complicated. But, you know, I think to give a simple answer, uh, I think that Walmart has certainly embraced amongst a fairly large chunk of the Canadian population, but probably not the whole rent shopper. But in the United States, uh, the number one store that American millionaires shop at is Walmart. Well, what do you think about competition within Metropolis at Metrotown? Because one of the other big anchors there is uh, a superstore, which again, we've seen it over the year, over the years diversify into more kind of uh, offerings like clothing as well as electronics that are known for their groceries. And Walmart, it's gone into the grocery game as well. Uh, do you anticipate that there's going to be maybe a little bit of uh, healthy competition between those two stores that are just going to be a few feet from each other? I think so. I mean, there'll definitely be some competition, but uh, going back to the clustering that we discussed with Holt Renfrew, I think that, you know, having Superstore there uh, and having Walmart with similar categories, uh, what's interesting about these retailers is they both have really strong in-house brands and they, you know, have a fairly decent brand matrix that I think is almost more complementary than competitive. Uh, I think the name of the game is, you know, if it's two stores will pretend they have the same sales, in theory, you want to double the sales so that they both at least remain the same and one isn't completely gobbling up the other. In reality, there probably will be some competition, but I, I think that Metrotown is such a strong center and, you know, both of those are such a strong pull that I think they're both going to survive, actually. I, I, if I was doing the leasing at that center, I probably would have put them both in there. Excellent. Yeah, very interesting there. Well, Craig, as always, want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at Retail Insider. Coming up next, we're speaking to Gord Frost from Mercer Canada about cost of living in Canadian cities. And first, want to let you know about an event we have coming up. A range of innovative, disruptive technology has emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. We talk about this all the time on the show, we'll be talking about it more September 13th at BIV's FinTech panel. The focus will be on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more info, you can go to BIV.com slash events. Believe it or not, Vancouver has actually fallen two spots on Mercer Canada's annual cost of living survey. Now, don't misinterpret that. We're still one of the most expensive cities in Canada. You got my hopes up, Haley. (laughs) You got my hopes up. I know. We're still up there. Tied with Toronto, actually, at 109 out of a list of 209, though. So we're in the bottom half, but the most expensive city in Canada to live. And this is for employees working abroad. The top spots on the list worth mentioning, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Zurich, and Singapore. Joining us now on the line from Montreal is Gord Frost, partner and career businesses leader at Mercer Canada. Gord, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So uh, interestingly, Vancouver did fall two spots, maybe not the most significant decline, but most Canadian cities actually fell in their rankings aside from Toronto. What do you attribute this to? 
Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things at play. I think overall the Canadian cities, you know, have been relatively stable from a cost of living perspective. And as you said earlier, this is really targeted at um, expat employees, so people who are moving around with their employer from one country to another or one city to another. So one of the big drivers, as you can imagine, is uh, exchange rates, right? So given that the value of the Canadian dollar has fallen a little bit, you know, relative to both the U.S. and other global currencies, most Canadian cities are now a little bit less expensive from a global perspective. Um, only really Toronto has gone up, and that's because of uh, the cost of rental housing in Toronto, where the market there still remains quite tight. It'd be accurate to surmise that these are expats. They are being dispatched by their companies to work in these cities. They're generally probably making more than maybe what the medium household income is in a lot of these cases. Is that kind of an accurate summation about why these are kind of different rankings than what we would typically expect? Generally, yes. You know, so usually these would people be people that would be, you know, in either senior management or executive positions that are being moved, you know, from one city or country to another, either to manage a business or lead a business or potentially from a developmental perspective, because they're trying to develop their talent by rotating them around the world, as, as some large companies still do. Yeah, fair enough. Interestingly, Ottawa, the least expensive city looked at, and Ottawa hasn't been in the same position as Vancouver, Toronto, or even Montreal when it's come to this massive rise in the cost of living for housing. But I, I'm curious, Gord, when you look at other countries around the world, typically it tends to be the capital city that's the most expensive. You know, that's a really interesting point. And I think that in a lot of cases, if you think of like London or Paris or Tokyo, right, those are those are the capital cities, but they're also the major economic hubs in those respective countries. So I think that's a reflection of the fact that to a certain extent, you know, in Canada and maybe in the U.S. also, you know, Washington isn't the most expensive city in the U.S. Similarly, Ottawa is not the most expensive city in Canada, even though it is the seat of government here. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe from a broader perspective, though, if we step back in, if a company was thinking about whether they want to set up shop in, say, Tokyo versus Vancouver, are, are these some of the factors that they're going to keep in mind? Even though Vancouver is not like a financial center of the world like the Tokyo is, it might be more economical for them to actually you know, send employees here to work. Yeah, you know what? I think you've raised a really, really good point and something that, you know, as a Canadian and as someone who works in HR and these kind of things, I think is really um, exciting and, and an advantage that, that Canadian employers in Canadian cities should really be pushing when we're both competing for talent globally, you know, competing for companies to potentially locate here. Um, you know, I think what we do is we offer a, a relatively speaking, and I know a lot of your listeners may, may not believe me on this, but still a relatively speaking affordable cost of living, again, when compared with a Tokyo or a Singapore or a London. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, Mercer also offers a quality of living survey, which, which we've talked about on your program before, where Canadian cities, specifically Vancouver, rank at the very top of the list. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, really, really fantastic quality of living at a fairly reasonable cost of living, which I think is a, is a, is a really winning combination that, that we should be really out there, you know, touting more, more loudly. Mm -hmm. So Vancouver, ahead of Toronto in terms of quality of living, tied now with Toronto for cost of living. Aside from these two categories, Gord, what do you think companies, what essentially determines whether a company will choose Vancouver versus Toronto for, say, setting up a regional, national, or even continental headquarters? 
Yeah, so the other key piece and the cost and quality of living tie into these is really availability of talent, Mm -hmm. right? And that's ultimately what's going to be, I think, the determining factor from a competitive perspective in the future, right? Like our our economies, even though we're moving to digitization and artificial intelligence and all that important stuff, you know, having a talented workforce, a highly educated workforce, you know, um, a workforce that is competitive from a global scale is ultimately what's going to draw investment from employers. And I think having the good quality of living and the reasonable cost of living is what draws talent here. So it's kind of a one leads to the other thing, I think, like by having the good quality of life and making sure that we sustain that, we're able to attract people who want to live here, and then that attracts the employers who, who, who want that talent. Are, are we facing some headwinds, though, just with regards to competition levels in Canada? If you look at the United States, they had major tax reforms last year, and a lot of Canadian companies were kind of scratching their heads at the February budget because we we're expecting maybe something similar to happen here in Canada. Is there, I don't know, a lot of uh, you know, barriers that we're going to have to face coming up with regards to attracting talent? Yeah, you know what, I think ultimately what you've highlighted is that there's no easy answer to this, right? Like from an employer's perspective, um, figuring out the right balance is difficult and there's all of these different variables at play, right? So there's quality of life, there's cost of living, there's taxation and, you know, take-home pay at the end of the day, there's, you know, access to, you know, things like quality education for your kids. I mean, there's a whole variety of things that will lead uh, an individual to want to live in one place or another and that'll lead to an employer to want to set up in one place or another. I think getting that mix you know, is difficult. And certainly, you know, I see that with the clients that I work with, we're always trying to figure out, you know, where should they be investing to try and have the best, we call it employee value proposition to attract the right people. But ultimately, I think you've raised, like, I don't think there's a right answer. I think you need to be aware of all of those things. And there's trade-offs that need to be made. And, And for each organization, they'll be slightly different. Yeah, it's an interesting issue. You mentioned the difference between currency values and how that can play a part. If you're earning a nice salary from a multinational company in euros, you look at Vancouver, maybe it's uh, within your means to move there, especially if the company's footing the bill. But if that company then wants to move to Vancouver, they run into this issue where a lot of employees who born and raised based here aren't making the salary on the whole that would allow them to actually be in Vancouver. So the employee base isn't necessarily exactly where they would need it to be. Correct. Correct. And I think you're right. I mean, the study that we released uh, this week really does focus on helping organizations figure out how to pay their people that they are moving around. And, you know, I'd love to be on one of those great expat (laughs) packages, too. And then we can live everywhere and be paid in euros and, you know, have all kinds of perks and benefits. So certainly, you know, that's not what the average employee experiences every day. Um, But nevertheless, I do think some of the underlying data around, you know, quality of living and cost of living and the competitiveness of Canadian cities relative to, you know, other global capitals is still, you know, good information to have. But, you know, as Tyler raised earlier, though, they're not the only things and we need to look at, you know, even the broader set of factors that that help Canada kick to compete at the end of the day. You know, I, I feel like I, I need a bask in, in my life 10 years ago when I actually was living overseas as, you know, somebody in his early 20s uh, and the company was footing the bill. And I mentioned this in our previous segment, Haley, but of course, I, I was in the Philippines mm-hmm. where uh, cost of living was dirt cheap um, and the company was actually giving me a, a stipend every single day. 
that I was there. They paid it in U.S. dollars too. Meanwhile, um, every single person that like I was supervising and working with, I, I think they're making like eight to ten dollars a day. Right. And so it was, it was kind of an uncomfortable situation, and a lot of people were struggling. And you just kind of wonder, you know, what factors like a company is going to you know weigh when it comes to whether they want to step set up shop in like one particular city versus another. I can understand if you're um, looking to save as much money as possible and pay people like $10 a day, not going to work so much in Vancouver where that doesn't even get you by with minimum wage uh, for an hourly rates here anymore. No, exactly. And you're right to point out, I think that it points to some interesting social dynamics, morale, tension within an organization. I'll say this. Everybody would always say to me like, you're rich. And I was like, (laughs) oh. You don't know what life is like back home in Vancouver, guys. It's like, believe me, I'm not. So it was uncomfortable at times. Well, it's all relative. And I think that's what this yeah, list yeah. points out quite well. Cost of living in Vancouver, within Vancouver, quite high. But on this list, we're in the bottom half. But Gordon, I want to flip it around. If you have Vancouver or Toronto-based companies looking abroad to send employees, what are the most viable options going to be for cities that rank 109 out of 209? Yeah, so I, I think it ultimately depends on the business need then, right? And and so ultimately, you're not necessarily going to send someone, you know, to a really low-cost city in Latin America when you ultimately need them to be in Europe, right? right. So I think the business need is the key driver. Um, and then ultimately, you may choose, you know, some lower-cost cities, you know, in uh, in other parts of Europe rather than, say, a London or a Zurich um, if if you have the flexibility to do that. So I think it really is dependent on the type of work they need to do, the type of clients you might be needing to interact with or, or why they're going over there. Um, but then ultimately, I think the challenge really is, well, if I am sending someone, for, for instance, from, say, you know, Vancouver to London, understanding, well, how much do I need to pay them? What is the total cost of doing that? Especially if you're an organization that doesn't do that a lot, right? There's some big multinationals that are moving people around all the time and they've got big teams that do this regularly. But for a lot of Canadian organizations, they might not have, you know, dozens and dozens of expats. They might only have a couple or it might be their first few. So I think the real key is understanding what all the the costs are that are involved so that A, you can properly, you know, do do the cost benefit analysis internally of do we really want to send this person and what's it really going to cost us? And then making sure that you're treating them equitably too, because it's not just about having the really rich expat package, um, but it's also making <laughs> sure that when they're over there, you know, the flip side is if, if you do it wrong, right? And they're always focused on how am I going to pay my taxes? What is the tax implications of all this? You know, how can I afford housing here? It's so expensive. And I've got maybe a place back in Vancouver. Like being an expat sounds glamorous, but if if the company doesn't do it right, it can be a really big headache too. That's a good point. Well, besides that, you know, if BIV wanted to send me and Tyler to Zurich and Tokyo, sure. I would still, okay. I would take that okay. risk, yeah. I guess. But I think based <laughs> on what you're saying, Gord, that's probably not going to happen <laughs> for us at this time. But as always, really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thanks for your insight. It's a pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That's Gord Frost, partner and career business leader at Mercer Canada. And that's it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to BIV today. You can subscribe and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Stitchers, and just go to BIV.com where you can find even more of our business news stories. 